I'm really looking forward to um, work with you in this text, the 37 practices. Also um, sharing with you how to relate to a text like this in general. How to work with these traditional texts so that they really become transformational. Uh, how, how to work with a text like that, that it really touches your heart and go beyond this kind of reading no, where we just read a book or we read something and then comes the next and then the next and the next, but nothing really changes in our life. And we, we know a bit more about Buddhist philosophy or have some nice ideas, but nothing has changed. In this text, the 37 practices is one of the most revered, one of the most precious texts in the Tibetan tradition. So every everyone knows uh, every Tibetan knows about this text. The monks and nuns, they all memorize this text. And this text contains a, a different way of living, the manual for a different kind of living. And this different kind of living is the life of the Bodhisattva. And what I would like to do tonight is to to kind of enter this text like as if it's a place, and in a way it is. A, a sacred text like this is is like a place. It's like a, a it's like a pure land, a pure land of the Buddhas. And part of that is that. When we read a text like this, that we become aware that this is written by a person, a person just like us, not like some saint or some super scholar or uh, someone who has nothing to do with us, no Thomas Sample, like us, is a person who struggles. And out of his pain, out of this, his despair, out of his seeking, he wrote this text as a poem, like as a poem from his heart. And yes, he lived more than 800 years ago, but the kinds of struggle people went through 800 years ago. They are not that different than the struggles we go through in our life. It's like the basic human themes have not changed. Even if our life is different and in the, our language is different and our education is different, the kind of struggles we human go through when we live, when we love, when we work, when we raise children and we live in families and relationships, they are just the same. So, if you want to summarize this uh, text in a kind of... Well, let's say this first. So, if you are 
in your life in a place where it's really difficult. Most of the time we are in a place like that. Yeah. It's just, it's, it is just, that's life. It's, that's not going to change. No, when we struggle, when we have like health problems, relationship problems, uh, anxiety problems, depression problems, and we think something is wrong, this shouldn't be like this. Why is this happening to me? Uh, give me a tool to get rid of it. We just don't get it. <laughs> that this is it. This is life. And it was, a, it was like this 800 years ago. There is, not, there is nothing wrong with you. There is also nothing wrong with life. It's just how it is. So if you are in a place where you struggle, right now, and sometimes, of course, we are like in, in periods, I, now I wanted to say when we are in transition, but we're always in transition, but sometimes there is like periods which you would call a crisis, and then then there's maybe a period which where things are going better. I mean, they are not really going better, but the crisis was so bad. So what we experienced <laughs> then, which is also a crisis, seems to be like the good time, you know? <laughs> like, wow, I have a really good time. <laughs> but still, it really sucks. <laughs> but compared to that, it's like heaven. <laughs> so if you are in a in a... In a in a time where, which you would call a crisis, then tonight you're in the best place. I mean, you are so fortunate to to uh, to be able to to look at these poems. If you are in a in a period uh, of your life, you know where which we would call yeah things are going okay. I mean, that's fantastic, of course. I mean. It's, if there's a sun, if there's a sunny day, sit there and, and soak it in. Yeah, but uh, and the problem with the sunny days is sometimes we get lazy. We we kind of you know our practice and our 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 searching, our long longing, our questioning, is kind of uh, you know is fading out. No, because you know we're sitting in the sun and things. You know, maybe we think, yeah, I got somewhere with my practice and things are going well, and and then there's not any more that uh, that passion or that uh, that uh, urgency in our practice. So, if you are in, from that point of view, if you are in a difficult place, it's a good place. Because it keeps you, you know, you know uh, I can't just continue to run around and, you know, try to entertain myself. It's, it's just not working anymore. So in that way, from that point of view, the crisis which is happening is maybe really, I mean, a jewel, a precious thing. So, but if you have a good time, and well, like one of the so-called good times, and you are here. That's also, you are in the best place because it's getting to go difficult. So, and this is like, we often forget that 
if we have a, a, a quiet period, like a good period in our life, to use that period to uh, to intensify our our familiarity with practices, because it, it's it's going to be worse. I'm sorry to say, <laughs> it's it, it's it, it, it's like that. We love, we lose what we love. We we, we get attached to health. We are we are going to be sick. We enjoy our job, and you know we're getting somewhere. We are going to lose it, and there's nothing we can do about that. So, no matter where you are in your life, tonight is the best place you could go in Malmo. I promise you. <laughs> I promise you. This is not a waste of time. I'm sure you will get something. Out of this, uh, out of this text. I mean, I, of course, I'm not promising amazing awakening experience, but if we get like something, you know, just a little thing, a little puzzle in this mystery of life, of getting through it, th then, I mean, then it's worth it to to do what we're doing here. Uh, so, if you want, uh, uh, like, if you would kind of condense the main message of this text, you could it also, before I say that, I will mainly refer to this commentary. It's called Reflection on Silver River. It's, uh, I will put it, are you all in the Facebook group, uh, the Shenrezik group? You are not. But are we friends on Facebook? Yeah, my wife. Ah, you, uh, so you are yeah, not on no, Facebook. No. Uh, uh, so then, then I will send the things out also on email. So then you will get, it, you will get an email. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Uh, but you, the others, they are in that Shenrizi group. Yeah. No, I can add you. Yeah, yes. Then you can also look at what we have done so far, yeah. Because I, I, I think I'm not going to have a lot of time to talk about the Shemrezik practice. Um, so I will, uh, at the end of this evening, I will uh, share a bit how we, how I imagine how we can work every day with this text, yeah. It's like, uh, and it will be a bit different. Those of you who ha have had. Uh, some familiarity with the Shenrezik practice, you can have a combination of re using this text and the Shenrezik practice. But we will talk about that. Would you please repeat the name? Reflections? Reflections on Silver River. Yeah. Uh, and so this is Ken McLeod. Ken McLeod is an American Buddhist teacher. He's a student of Kalu Rinpoche. And he is a translator also, and uh, he made this translation of these 37 practices, and he wrote a commentary, and, and this is this book. And I really like it. I, I like, I have been listening, he has a, has, he has a very good website, and 
a podcast and I have been so a lot of what I say you know what you know from my style of teaching and what I say some of you have been listening to me a few years now comes from him yeah he's one of the teachers who kind of shape my way how I present the Dharma and how I talk about it and some of the phrases I use and the metaphors I use I mean there's also others but he is uh, influential uh, there and uh, and the other um, text I will use is a commentary Geshe Jampa Tekshok gave in Nalanda Monastery uh, so this is more education. Champa Tekshok is um, is a Tibetan monk, like one of the old generation. He passed away two three years ago, and he was the abbot of Mon of Nalanda Monastery, this monastery where I lived eight years. And uh, so he was one of the uh, old generation lamas. You know, still started his training in Tibet. And he was the abbot of Saraje Monastery, which is Saraje Monastery is one of the biggest uh, monasteries uh, in, in uh, uh, was in Tibet and it was rebuilt in India. There's about three thousand monks living there, and uh, he was a monastery. So he gave this commentary to Western monks uh, in, in the in uh, in Nalanda Monastery, and it was. Uh, put together by a Tupton Children. Maybe some of you have heard about Tupton Children, an American nun who wrote a few books. So, uh, and I will also post that link, just in case if you are a reader who likes to, you know, read some some books. So that is a traditional commentary uh, to that text. And I, I've met Geshe Champa Tech Shop, and uh, so that's uh, that's the other source of. Uh, of this teaching and um, I have received teachings on this uh, from His Holiness the Dalai Lama and from my teacher Lama Sopa Rinpoche yeah. so that you have a sense of that when we when we do this uh, when we study this text when we share this text and we bring it into our daily life that we do it within the context of this tradition. It's like an unbroken, an unbroken lineage, which goes back to the Buddha, uh, but then particular to uh, Shantideva, Master Shantideva Atisha, who brought these teachings into Tibet, and then a group of practitioners called the Kadampa Geshes, who lived in the 12th century, who wrote a few of these texts, the Eight First Mind, Transfor mind Transformation, the Seven uh, First Mind Transformation, and this text, Tong Mesangpo, Tong Mesangpo text. So that's the main text of what is called the Lojong tradition, attitude training tradition. And then there was this, is this unbroken lineages of um, practitioners, male and female, through the centuries, from the 12th century when this te text was written until today. And then this text and the blessing of this text, uh, the transmission of this text, 
came to me through His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Lama Sopa Rinpoche. So, usually I start with some meditation, but since I now got really into the talking, mm -hmm. I'd have a short meditation after the break. So let's keep that as a kind of introduction uh, until the break. And I will make recordings of all the talks. Uh, and I will put them into the Facebook group. I will send you the link. And, and then you can listen. When, if, you do, if you are not coming, we have six, six meetings. I don't think we will finish the text, so we will see. Uh, so then you can listen to the recordings. Um, I also taught this text now just in Jödeborg uh, for a whole weekend. So I recorded that also and I, I will make that also available to you. So then you get just similar, but of course it's always different because I'm not following like a fixed script. So, uh, so that's also something you, you could listen to. I have not yet um, uh, put it online, but, uh, but I will. I will send you the whole text as a PDF file. And tonight I brought you just the first three verses, so we have something to start with. So now the summary. Well, one way to summarize that. This is from Ken McLeod. So what is this text about? Every experience has inf infinite dimensions. Yeah? Every experience has infinite dimensions. Can you experience all of them without struggling against any of them? Can you experience all of them without struggling against any of them? So every experience has a lot of dimension, a lot of things are happening. Like let's say you are criticized. That is an experience. Or you have a burnout. That is an experience. It has many dimensions. It's like many layers. I mean, it goes back to childhood, trauma, you know, your buttons are pushed, you know, it's like, you know, you start to, I mean, it's also of you who have done therapy, it's like, you think you, you have, now you got it, and then there is another layer, yeah, and it's even this other layer is maybe more difficult than the layer before, you thought you, now you really got into it, and you and what it is done, no, there's another dimension to it. So every experience is so, you know, when we struggle, is so, it has so many layers, so many dimensions. So the question here is, can you experience all of them without struggling against any of them? So what does that mean? What that means is that this text is based on this insight that we suffer because we resist what is happening. So this text is not about not having problems. This text is about how can I relate to this 
what I have, what I call a problem, in a different way. How can I relate to this so that it breaks me open to love, that it breaks me open to freedom? How I, can I relate to this? So it's not about how, what can I do with it, how can I fix it, how can I get rid of it, how can I kind of pray so not, good, bad, not bad things are going to happen to me. No, it's not about this. It's about experience everything completely, totally. It's in its in its infinite dimension. If you can, Ken McLeod says, if you can, of course this is an ideal kind of. It's it's like, but if you, you know, so it's an ideal. Like we are, t it's a called Bodhisattva training. We are going to fail in this. But it's it's uh, no to have an to have a to have a vision, you know, to have a vision of this wholeness, to have a vision of that awakened heart, to have a vision of what we are capable of. That can be so beautiful, so wonderful. And then, of course, the failing, we need to make part of that process. So also failing is winning. <laughs> also failing is awakening. Because also failing is an experience with infinite dimension. Can you experience all of them? without struggling against any of them. So if you can, then suffering comes to an end. If you can, then su that's the Buddhist prom promise. If you can, experience everything completely, then suffering comes to an end. What does it mean suffering comes to an end? It does not mean that the pain goes away. That's not what it means. The, the pain is part of our life. We, we will be continue to be heartbroken. That's not going to go away. And that's not suffering. That's pain. Suffering will come to an end. No. Internal question. <laughs> Suffering comes to an end, but not the pain. And suffering is optional. So suffering is that which is created to the way we relate to these experiences. That's how we create suffering. So that's that's something we will look into in this text. How do we create suffering? And how can we relate to the pain 
so that it does not become suffering. And this is something we need to explore in our experience. So if you can, then suffering comes to an end. So obvious, so simple, so deep, and so wonderful. And Tong Sampo, the, the author of these poems, he knew what he was talking about. So if you read his life story, he was, uh, his, his, his mother passed away when he was three, his father passed away when he was four, five, four or five, and then he was raised by his grandmother who passed away a few years later. And he was raised by a by an uncle then, and then quite young he entered a monastery. But because he didn't have any family, and the system in the Tibetan monasteries was that the monasteries they provided the education and the room, and uh, but uh, you had to take care of everything else, most of the time even of the food. So the families of the monks and nuns, they had to take care of, of the monks and nuns. And he didn't have anyone. And uh, the custom was that those monks who were in that uh, situation, they would perform rituals in, in, the, in the villages to get uh, donations and uh, you know, get support. But he refused to do that because he didn't want to compromise his practice. So he, he he had a he had a very a very traumatic childhood and uh, very difficult uh, surroundings and upbringing with a lot of hardship and a lot of hardship. He spent about twenty years in retreats in, in solitary retreat, and he uh, he, he he was offered. Uh, mm, prestigious positions like being the abbot of the monastery and he refused and then he became known for his uh, for his compassion so uh, in the in the biography it says how the beggars uh, they refused to they, they didn't ask him anymore for anything because he would just give away everything and they 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 didn't they didn't want to take the last, the last rope or whatever it was, from this monk. So they didn't ask him anymore. So and then he wrote uh, this. Uh, so in in this situation, in this uh, in this uh, hardships, instead of you know going to the householders and uh, performing rituals. He wrote down, he sat down and he wrote this poem for us. And it became uh, one of the most uh, uh, known texts. So, 
a few a few words about uh, how to read this text. One of the problems or challenges we have when we approach a text like this is that we read it too literally. We don't approach it as a poem. Now, when we read a Buddhist text, we think it's like a philosophical text where it's about getting some knowledge, you know, some philosophical knowledge, how, how it works, or three of this and four of that. That's kind of the approach. Okay, well, what, what is here to know? Yeah? Like we're looking for knowledge. And knowledge here, I mean uh, conceptual knowledge. That, that's what we're looking for when we, when we read a book like this. So, what is more interesting with this text is to approach the verses like a poem. What, what is it when you read a poem? Like when you read a poem, you know, some, some people can't read poems. Because when they read it, they read it, and then they say, what's the meaning of this? What's the, what's the meaning of this? You know, or people, some people, they go into into an art exhibition and they look at the art and they think, what's the meaning of this? I can't, you know, can't, can't this painter make a, a painting of a horse like everyone else? Yeah. It's just something which sometimes gets lost in our kind of education. That kind of uh, uh, approach to, uh, uh, to written or also other kind of art. That it is not that the, the communication, and that is what, what is being transmitted, is not necessarily some intellectual thing. What's the meaning of this? So the question is more, when you, when you look at a, a painting like this or at a poem, the question is not what is the meaning of this, the question is how does it make you feel? How does it make you feel? What is happening when you read this? What associations do you have? What mental images come up? What feelings come up? And, and m many people, also many teachers, they don't get this. Like there's many people who, for example, read the Heart Sutra as a, like, okay, and, and they can give you a lecture about the meaning of the Heart Sutra. What does it mean? This does mean. But that's not the point. I mean, that's maybe one secondary point of the Heart Sutra. The more interesting, interesting thing is the experience. You know, like an artist, when he writes a poem or makes a drawing, he wants to communicate an experience, a human experience. It comes out of this experience. Is is the way like when the artists want to express his pain. And of course, a lot of art is coming from pain. So that's, that's, the, that's what the artist puts into the poem or into the music or into the, into the, uh, into the, into the drawing. And then when you, because you are a human being and you look at that drawing uh, or you listen to that music, you have also an experience. And that's what these texts are also about. So you read a verse like that, you read a Heart Sutra, 
the Heart Sutra or you read it like line by line and then you just pause and you feel oh, what's what is that what is that doing with me what is it doing with me when it says uh, no this no that no this no this no liberation no path no practitioner no enlightenment so what is happening then in you what kind of experience is this talking about not thinking about it but connecting with the artist in your heart it's like meeting a person like if you if you listen to a, a piece of music you're meeting a part of this person who made that music who wrote that music and you can feel it and that's what what is touching you and that's what you yeah. so that's how I would like to approach this text also also on the other level that we will look a bit from a kind more of like a traditional point of view so what is this talking about but I want to focus that experiential reading and then what is happening in you is not necessary what you think should happen. Like if you, no, if if we read if when we when we when we read some of these lines and they, some of them are really provocative, they will push buttons. Yeah, but the experience we will have here they will be different, slightly different for everyone. Like one line which. For someone is like, wow, this is really inspiring. Will make another person upset. And then, if you have the idea that this poem is about the kind of the good feelings, and the person who is inspired did, did it right, and the person who is upset did it wrong, then then this is a this is an unhealthy way to approach your practice, your meditation practice. Because getting upset about a guided meditation or uh, getting inspired, both are experiences and they are both valid and they are both interesting and they are both having their purpose because in both you get to know an aspect of yourself. And that's the point. The point in a gratitude meditation is not to, ah, I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful. No, the point is, you go through the gratitude meditation, yes, and for some it will happen at some points in that, in that gratitude meditation. Yeah, oh, this makes sense, yeah. Something, yeah, it, this touches me. But another person will just start, shut up, you know, I'm not grateful. My life sucks, don't come me with I should be grateful. So then that person who feels like that maybe feels, ah, uh, I can't meditate, I can't even feel gratitude, I'm so ungrateful. <laughs> yeah. uh, instead of saying, wow, what's happening here? I'm getting upset. Well, oh, that is interesting. How boring that person gets grateful, you know? <laughs> I mean, what's the, what does this person, <laughs> what does this person learn? Yeah, yeah, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. Yeah, come on, I'm here sitting with my <laughs> resistance and anger. That's really interesting. This is a very important point. 
in your meditation practice. Be loyal to your experience and, and learn from that. And it's all interesting. It's all part of that self-discovery, of that self-knowledge. So, and a lot of these teachings we, we, take, uh, we take literally. Let's say you know, there's, for example, a line somewhere in this text, and you have heard that line before. Uh, you know, it's connected with uh, opening your heart, and I don't remember how the line is put, but, but, but it is about this thing that everyone has been your mother in previous lives. Have you heard that? Yeah, so yeah, you have all listened to some teachings. So now, when you read that in the text, you might think it's like a description of a fact, or it's like something like, oh, this is how it is. Everyone was my mother. Yeah. So let's debate about that. How can that be? And how so countless lives and. Are there enough beings? And so we can get into this whole complicated discussion about uh, what's with this, you know, previous lives and what is being reborn and mathematically, that, does it come together that everyone's stuff like this? And that's not the point. No, this, this sentence is a poetic expression of an experience of feeling close feeling a kinship, feeling connection to everyone. It's not a discussion if everyone really was your mother or something. It's like, it, it is a feeling, it is describing the experience of feeling close to everyone, knowing everyone, developing a sense of kinship, a sense of connectedness with with everyone, this, uh, no matter what gender, no matter what background, no matter what education, no matter what time, not whether, no matter what continent, there is that possibility for human beings to connect with each other as if they were your mother. And then people, some people, they put away that book because they think, this is so stupid, I, this I can't accept. It's a, uh, th th this is like putting away a, a, like a poem and saying, I, it, uh, this is, I can't accept this. Philosophically, that does not make sense. No. But how does it make you feel? So many, of course, many uh, Buddhist teachers would not agree with this. They would say, no, it's a teaching. It tells you how it is. Many Buddhist teachers would say, no, this is the teaching that everyone, and swallow it. <laughs> everyone has been your mother. This is how it is. This is the teaching. And the Buddha said it. They would even say. And there's many points like this. You know, the teachings on the hells or uh, stuff like this. The teachings on karma. You know, some Buddhist teachings they present the teachings on karma as a teachings uh, as a teaching as this is how it works. This is how it is. 
And the myth, this myth of, you know, karma, it's much more true than the myth of the Christians. So this can, you know, particularly if you are someone who always has, you know, you have this struggle with this, this text, this kind of dogmatic text, which seem to tell you how things are, and you are supposed to believe it. You know, see, you know, you can find a different way to read it. These are myths of humans. These are the, these books. They are written by humans. These are myths of humans. That is this human attempt to make things and to make. To bring meaning to things, to explain things, to find like a way to relate to what is happening, to 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 find a way to relate to these horrible things which happening sometimes. And then this myth and this way to make meaning to to relate to it becomes sometimes this dogmatic uh, dogmatic uh, uh, explanations. Which gives us a kind of pseudo security. Ah, so now I know where it's karma. And then we become a fundamentalist. Then the myth turns into this is the way, this is how it is, it's karma. And again, many other teachers would question like my, I don't know what, what they would question, but uh, so since you are grown up and uh, you, you will receive teachings, other teachings, you have to make up your mind with this. It's, it's up to you. I'm not. I'm not trying to win you to this view or convince you. Uh, it's it, this is up to you. You have to find your place in this, and of course, that's a journey. When I in the beginning, when I when I was listening to these teachings on karma and the health and so, I was feeling like, well, finally, someone tells me how it is. Oh, this feels so good. Finally, I I have this explanation why things are happening what I can do. Finally, I, I know how can, I can be on the good side. I can do purification practices, and it's all karma, and, and, uh, and, yeah. and it feels so good to, have, to be a dogmatic believer. Because then, you know, you are in the right club, and you have an explanation, and if someone is suffering, you can then also just say, oh, this is karma. So you don't need to sit with that person and open to the pain and open to that. Why is this happening? We, are, we have no clue, actually. So we can cut off from that kind of, from the feeling side, by having a rational explanation. 
nevertheless, of course, I'm I'm using the Buddhist map. So now, if if tomorrow I could sit here and give you a, an explanation of the teachings on karma, and and it makes sense to me, and uh, I I I find the myth of the teachings on karma more helpful, more refined, more 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 of a empowering uh, map than the Christian map. So I believe in karma. <laughs> yeah. It's what I use. It's what I, what I and I don't have you know I I I I I, I use it as a way to navigate. I use it as a way. I do purification practices. So that's uh, that's one of the points. No, that was the two points I wanted to make. Now I yeah, I think that's the like the 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 us the thing what I talked about uh, reading them as poems and not taking them necessarily literally, yeah. Being interested in how 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 they make you feel. Ah, so no, that's that's the th one point. The, all what I said is one point. The other point is translation, because uh, uh, um, Ken McLeod is a translator, and. Uh, he is a translator whose approach is translating is not trying to be precise like with the words and what does it mean 900 years ago and so then finding the right word and being very close and like trying to be very close to the original text, he is a translator who assumes oh, it's about an experience. So, uh, knowing that this is a poem written by someone who lived 800 years ago in a different culture, a male person in a monastic environment, what kind of experience is being expressed there? And how can I express this in a language so that we can meet Tong Misampo in that experience? So, as and and if you read about uh, you know, people who have thought of, of course, there's a lot of uh, thinking about uh, this translating poems. What that means. And some people, they say, no, if you are translating a poem, actually that result is a new piece of art. It's not just a translation. So 
the the translator of a poem should be like maybe on the, in the title of the book it should be the the name of the translator and 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 not so much the name of the person who wrote the poem so what we will also look a bit into is because i have this uh, two translations the one from Geisha Jamba Teksha book and and the one here um, to get a sense of wow there is so much um, can change through translation just through a word so you read a, you read a text like a line in a text um, and no you have a you ha I mean, if you go beyond looking for what philosophically that means, but if you look into the experience, that the experience you have when you read that line and then you read the different line from another translator is completely different. And, and this is also very important when you read traditional texts, you know, that you also look at that, that, okay, what is the audience? You know, there is, for example, this book uh, Pabonka Rinpoche, Liberation in the Palm of Your Hand, which is like a classic in, in the, in the Lamrim studies. And this is a teaching that was given in, in 1921. It, and it was given uh, to monks in a very traditional hierarchical society in Tibet. And now we read this book. And it's translated, uh, kind of trying to be close to the original. And people, they have such a hard time with this book because they, they, don't, they don't understand the context in which this text is written. So this translation thing is something you, we, you, you, we, need, we need to consider when we practice within Tibetan Buddhism to be curious about this, to look at words from different teachers, how do they translate it, like people like Alex Burson or Ken McLeod or Jeffrey Hopkins, like translators who have been, uh, Robert Thurman, who have been in this for 40 years and they have been practiced and they did long retreats and they have been uh, speaking Tibetan for 40 years and 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 to be curious about how the, how do they translate this? How, how, what, yeah, and then you find very different connotations. So that also helps you to when you read a traditional text to take keep it a bit light. Don't take it so serious. Don't take it so literal. Uh, because this is this is the work of the translator. And now we have a break, not just now, just uh, to, to make you, to give you the last power to pay attention to what I say. Um, I will give you one example of this. And it is from this text, and it's actually the same translator, <laughs> because yet he is changing his translation. Yeah? So it's, it's one of the lines we will we will read today after the break
so So this is uh, from the there's two introductory verses before the text actually starts, yeah. And in this book is the newest translation, and you get a slightly older translation, which is on his website. Yeah? So in the in the translation you will give, that uh, you will get, which is a slightly older translation. Uh, the, this verse starts with the fully awake, the Buddha's source of joy and well-being. Yeah? So the fully awake, the Buddha's source of joy and well-being. Yeah? So the fully awake, the, uh, the Buddha's, the other, like it's the Buddha's. They are the fully awake and they are the source of joy and well-being. Makes sense for a Buddhist to to make a prayer like this. Yeah? Okay. Fully awake, the Buddhas. They are the source. They are the they are the refuge. You would say. Yeah? So now in this translation, in the in in the in the in this, it says, "Full awakening, Buddha." Like full awakening. Uh, what is that? Comma or fully fully awakening? Comma Buddha. The source of joy and well-being. It's completely different. Mm -hmm. Fully awakening, it's talking about you. Fully awakening, it's like, fully awakening is that what is happening to you. And that is the Buddha. Fully awakening, fully, what is the Buddha? Fully awakening. In the first translation, the Buddhas, there was a connotation that the Buddhas are something outside. They are the source of well-being. Here, full, full, full awakening, which is you, that what is happening here. That's the Buddha, and that's the source of joy and well, joy and well-being. It's completely different. And uh, from the, and both is being said in the Tibetan. So if, if you would uh, like ask one if you would ask translators or uh, is is that a, a kind of correct translation uh, of the Tibetan yes full awakening buddha it's co it's a correct translation then you ask him uh, ask uh, the fully awake the buddha is that a correct translation yeah it's uh, also a correct translation of the Tibetan and both are fundamentally different. It's a completely different experience. It's a completely different emphasis. It, no, someone who, who, who has, uh, who has no, who has no, who, this idea that they are Buddhas, you know, like, where are they? And, you know, uh, when they, when they hear that first, the fully awake, the Buddhas, it's like, oh, come on. I, yeah, I used to, I used to pray to you, Jesus when I was small. Uh, 
But then if you say, no, actually, awakening Buddha is talking about something in you. We are not talking about some other beings who come and rescue you. We're talking about your potential. We're talking about your awakening. Then that person is completely mad and feels, yeah, wow, this I can pray, this I can relate to. And it's the same text, it's the same line in Tibetan. And all the text you have read so far, all the teachings, they are like that. They are full of that kind of possibilities. I think that's the exact copy of the book you have. Which of the translations is it in, in that one? Uh, in the book is the, the newest translation. And I will give you the slightly older translation. Uh -huh. So you will be the ones who will believe that we <laughs> pray to the Buddhas, the full way, <laughs> and, and, and that they are the source of well-being. So you have to swallow that. Yeah? I'd rather read that <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I will, you know, maybe you can then change. This, there is not, uh, there is not uh, that much difference. I mean, this is the one difference which makes really a difference between these two texts, uh, between these two translations. There's a few little things here and there, but I will, I will point that out. Yeah? And then, uh, you, of, your, of course, you can get this book yes, if you want. Yeah. You can order it. Okay, so let's have a break. Uh, I think that was that was it. Uh, so for the uh, in introduction. So after the break, we can sit quietly a bit, and then we will start with the first three verses, and with a bit of explanation how to work with this the next two weeks until we meet the next time. Okay, let's have 10 minutes break. So... So these are the... the, the two introduction verses and then... <coughs> Uh, the first, you know, the first of the thirty-seven practices. First, uh, so where the one, you know, the one, and uh, the text is, uh, and I will send you the whole text. Yeah? I just brought this uh, three verses today. So the text is structured that it starts with seven preliminary practices, and the first one is this one. It's the reflection on the precious human life. So that's uh, the, the f uh, what we will do uh, the next time. We will uh, go through these seven preliminary practices, preparation practices, like to prepare. Yeah, and today we will look at the first one of those. And so it starts. The text starts with Namo Lokateshwarya. And Lokateshwarya 
is short for Avalokiteshvara, so the Buddha of compassion, Shenrezig. So there you have the connection with the Shenrezig practice. I pay homage to Shenrezig. Yeah. So when you when you read that, so let, let's say you, you, know, you are at home, you have meditated a bit, like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, either with the Shenrezig practice or some breathing meditation or mindfulness practice or a body scan or whatever your practice is, like your daily meditation practice. And then you, then you take the, this text yeah, and you read it and you, you pause. So, and it starts with Namo Alokiteshvara, I pay homage to Shenrezig. So now you could just say, okay, homage to Shemrezik. Yeah? But of course that will not change anything. Yeah? So w- what, you, uh, w- what, you would, uh, what you would explore is, so what, I- what are you actually paying homage to? And how does that feel? What is that kind of experience? What do you think Tommy Sampo felt when she wrote when he wrote that homage to the Buddha of compassion so it could be that it was an hour of darkness an hour of despair where he was on his edge and he didn't he couldn't he couldn't figure it out he didn't know he felt alone and then he says I pay homage to compassion he calls upon help. He calls upon compassion. What is the Swedish word for homage? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. yeah. Homage is like uh, I praise. I praise. Uh, I praise. Uh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Shenrezig. Uh, yeah. I pay homage. It's it's a uh, it's a proclamation, it's a proclamation of a reverence of wow the of what's that word, Dad? Hmm. And. So, uh, Ken McLeod writes about this, like just to give you a taste of uh, kind of the experience which is in this Namo Avalokiteshvara, Namo Shenrezig, homage to Shenrezig. He writes, imagine that you are Avalokiteshvara. So those of you who have done the practice of Shenrezig and so that's what you do in the Shenrezig practice. You imagine yourself as Avalokiteshvara. Inside you are as quiet as a pond that lies in the center of a deep forest, a pond that, protected by the trees around it, has been undisturbed by even the slightest breeze for a thousand years, 
feel that stillness within you. So it's like an invitation to feel a stillness, that kind of primordial stillness in you. And we, we all have that. There's a stillness in you, like a presence, a stillness which is which is also there when your mind is very busy, but it, it, it's like you, you, it's difficult to connect with it sometimes. It's like a beingness, a, a liveness, a stillness, uh, an indestructible undes, an undes, an sense of well-being. So, imagine that. Because of that stillness, you hear everything. You hear the cry of a baby when it first comes into the world. You hear a young woman gasp of disbelief and despair when, your boy, when her boyfriend breaks things off. You hear the sobs of a pain of a woman stricken by breast cancer. You hear the sigh of a man when he first realizes that his body is losing its vitality. So he goes on like this. So he's going, he's giving examples of difficult things, of beautiful things, of touching things, yeah? and you hear that all. What do you do? In the stillness, your heart breaks and outputs a river of compassion. So there we can use the image of the thousand arm Shanrizik. It's like he is like no, yes, he is like we, we have worked with the four arm Shanrizik, but there's this one thousand arm Shanrizik. And this out of that, out of that stillness, he hears the cries of the world and his body splits open and he has he has like thousand arms. And he has like ten hats which look in all directions. And from his hands pours out the, the nectar of compassion, the healing nectar. He has like an eye in all of his hands where it's like a pouring, compassion is pouring out. Yeah. You reach out and touch the pain of each and every person. Whatever the connection, you find a way to ease their pain. In that easing, each person knows a moment of open stillness, a quiet they, that they have never experienced before. And that moment changes everything. This is why he is called Lord of the World. Lord of the World, like one possible translation of the word Chenrezig. So that's the that's this this uh, homage to Shenrizik. It's from that stillness, from that connectedness. You connect with the warmth and with the longing to to ease the pain. So, and I can see now that something happened when I said this, when I read this. So there is that, okay, Namo Alokrishvara, yeah, and now is this. 
It's completely different. Maybe it's like you feel, well, this is too much. How can I ever do this? And, and so on. And so I don't want to do this. This is scary. Maybe you feel inspired. Maybe you feel, uh, you know, so all kinds of, but something happened, I think, in almost all of you. You can feel it. You can see it. And, uh, and that's what, what we are exploring when we enter this text. And we have entered this text now. Before it was just, you know, okay, there's a piece of paper and you read it and all of you have read it. I kind of, what's this piece of paper? And now we're in a completely different space. So now we are in the text. Now we are in the, now we entered that, that place. And it is a difficult place. It is a beautiful place. It is an inspiring place. It is a meaningful place. And it is a difficult place also. That's why it is called the path of the Bodhisattva. And the Bodhisattva is a warrior. So the, the Bodhisattva is... So the warrior is that aspect in you which, which, which dares to go forward. And feels kind of there is a like a yeah there is like uh, yes I take on this I take I take this on I I'm going to save everyone one by one <laughs> one by one no matter what it takes no matter how long it takes one by one. And it's possible because the ground is this stillness, the primordial ground, and this is in everyone. No matter how lost they are, no matter how tortured they are, no matter what is happening, that is in everyone, and, this, and it is indestructible. So Shenrizik does not come from a place of you know, hopelessness and it's too much and how can I save? No, because it comes from that experience of there is an indestructible beauty inside of me and this is exactly the same for everyone else. And I'm going to rec I, I'm going to make I'm going to wake up all, all other people to that one by one and if it takes 30 trillion million milliarden years I, I'm going to do it I'm not going to give up and this is not not now not talking about do we have many lives is it possible no it's a, an experience it's, it's, a, it's a poetic expression for an experience. It's not about now discussing is this possible or 
do we have so many lives or are there countless beings or are there beings on other planets it's an it's it's an experience and when Tong Sampo wrote this down and that's why we can feel it he felt that that commitment that commitment of a bodhisattva so now comes the first two verses no these are not really the f- they are not part of the 37 practices they are like ah in in inter- they are like introduction or yeah something like that and that's a traditional structure so the first the first of these two is homage praise and the second is something which is called the promise to compose and this is like the author saying i'm going to write this i'm going to do it i'm going to write i'm going to write this uh, i'm going to write this down i'm going to write down these verses about how an awakening being behaves and i'm going to do it i make that promise and this first you find in many of the traditional texts or that the author says yeah i'm going to I, i'm going to i'm going to do it and maybe you can connect with that if you ever have tried to write down something yeah like to you know to 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 uh, you know to 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 do you have something to say you want to express yourself and that's difficult you know, to keep to to you know to stand up for that so these authors they they kind of they make that promise okay i'm going to do it i'm going to sit here and suffer and sweat and struggle and despair and give up and the whole thing but i'm going to do it Now the this first you see that experience has no coming or going yet pour your energy solely into helping beings my excellent teacher and lord all seeing i humbly and constantly honor with my body speech and mind so this is a homage a praise to shinrisek you who see that experience has no coming or going So this is a beautiful way to to start this text because the, he starts this text with emptiness. And this is a very important uh, that you know, the first image of this heart breaking open and compassion this is only possible with emptiness. otherwise you are not going to survive that if you feel that there is a solid separate me here who is the savior of the world who is saving solid separate beings who are independent out there you're not going to make it you're not going to start it even 
So neither is there a solid separate here, being here with the Savior, nor are there solid separate being outside there who needs to be saved. And yet, the Bodhisattva vows to save them all. Get that together. <laughs> That's the thing. To get emptiness and compassion together. Neither saying, ah, beings don't exist, I don't exist, so who is there to save, who is there <laughs> who is the savior? Nor, I am. Oh, I am here. And these are the others. And they exist really. And there's real pain. And, yeah, neither of those. So that takes a while. Maybe we have figured it out uh, after six meetings. His Holiness definitely has figured it out. You, know, you, you saw, uh, John saw His Holiness uh, just in Strasbourg. And you also, yeah. So he has figured it out. So it's definitely possible. How? That's quite a journey. But if you, if, you know, it, that could be one way to kind of feel into it. How is how he, how is his holiness in contact with pain, with for example, with the pain of his people, like directly feeling it, and at the same time, he is like he is. And if you if you would want to look for someone who started this work, then his holiness would be a good example. Because he is doing that. He is saving everyone one by one. And he's going to come back. So it's beautiful that this text starts with you who see that experience has no coming and going. Yeah? So And there's not so much time, of course. But... So this is about selflessness, about emptiness. So whatever you heard about selflessness and emptiness, wherever you are in your understanding, you bring that into this first for now. Yeah. It's a bit of an experience. This is a bit describing an experience like... What would be an example of that? Like, no, there is some, like you are, no, maybe, like just a bit like, you are on a train station and you're sitting there, like peacefully, quietly, you're content, you're just sitting there and there's a lot of busyness. You know, people are coming and going and they are stressed and, you know, you see maybe a homeless person there and child and so there's a lot of busyness but you are quiet and you are and you feel open and soft and you're just sitting there and there's a sense of being connected with all of that but at the same time there is a sense actually nothing is really happening there is like 
yes, there is coming and going, but in the same time, there is that space. And that space kind of penetrates or holds or uh, radiates into all that busyness. You could sit, sit there also and you go, oh, oh, this is so stressful and all these people and, and it's like, ah, oh, get me out of here. Yeah, uh, that, That's not this. Yeah? So, <laughs> this is this is like yeah. This is just a simple kind of trying to get you a sense of what is being meant here. Yes, things are happening. It's not saying, no, it's not happening. But it's not happening separately, solidly, really heavy in the way it appears to you. So that's how this starts. Yet pour your energy solely in helping beings. So this is describing these two uh, wings of enlightenment. You know, wisdom, emptiness, and yet your energy, yet there is compassion. Yeah? You could also say, from that first line, one could also say, okay, yeah, then nothing needs to be done. No. Things don't exist in the way they appear. And yet you love them. Yet you give what you can give. Yet you do the best you can do. My excellent teacher and Lord all-seeing. My excellent teachers. So my excellent teachers. Now, when Tongme Sampo wrote this down, my excellent teachers, he started to cry. It's not, yeah, my excellent teachers, okay. It's like, at that moment, you connect with your teachers. And you're so fortunate. You're so fortunate that you have met this tradition. I mean, you're so fortunate, for example, in my excellent teachers, you could connect with the Holiness of Dalai Lama. And, and you like, and, and you, 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 you connect with, wow. I'm so fortunate that I met people like that. And, and no, that could be your therapists and your, you know, the people you are inspired by, you, the, you know, the masters and teachers. And when the Tibetan, you know, the Tibetan people, they are very like for them, it's very natural. This what is called guru devotion, or this connection to teachers. When a, when a Tibetan reads that and they pause, they start to cry. So, my excellent teachers. And then I think about Lama Sopa, Peter Fenner, Rob Priest, Ken McLeod, Pema Children, Lama Mayona. So, people who, who, have, who have really dedicated their life for teaching. That's what they do. And it's not easy. They they are not like it's 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 so 
and and they are here. They are here with me, and they are with me every day. So when I read my excellent teachers, then I feel that support and that. Yeah. And Lord all seeing, so Lord all seeing, that's Shinrazik. I humbly and constantly honor with my body, speech, and mind. So I pay homage, I honor, I prostrate to my teachers. This is something which is quite, it's sometimes difficult for us to connect with that or to get some, something, some experience of that because it's so alien for our culture, particularly Scandinavian culture, where there's like the emphasis on we are all equal, we are all the same, so hierarchy is kind of bad, and certainly there's not nobody like more developed or something like this, we are all, yeah, and uh, so, and that kind of, I mean, if we see like Mexicans going on their knees when they approach the Virgin or something, we think like, wow, this is stupid, superstitious. I'm not bowing to anything. Maybe I get up when the Queen comes into the room. That's, That's about it. I don't know if the Swedish people do that, but Danish people definitely do that. Like if the queen comes into the mood, you're not, you're not going to just sit there, you know, like. <laughs> so that's a bit that. I mean, uh, if, if, uh, you know, if the queen comes into the room in Denmark, everyone gets up. So that's their expression of um, I honor. I mean, what they honor, I'm not so sure, but <laughs> so what, what we honor when we get up is uh, here is uh, compassion, is awakening, is the human, the common human heart, the, the most beautiful aspect of what it means to be human. That's what we get up for. That's what we honor. So it makes sense to kind of explore this a bit and also not just thinking about it, but actually express it a bit with your body. Like maybe bow, maybe light a candle, maybe do three prostrations, maybe uh, like, I mean secretly in your home, nobody sees you. (laughs) Nobody. I mean, we don't make a show out of this, yeah. but but like, and we do, can't do it the Tibetan style. But it can be simple ges- gestures of maybe like putting the the like kind of arranging the picture a bit every day, like dusting it off, or <laughs> you know, putting a flower there, or. Uh, Maybe just looking at it, you know, sitting down, looking at it, and you know, saying some mantras. You know. 
offering, no making, like before you drink your coffee in the morning, you first offer it to the uh, to the teacher. Uh, you know, if you have a simple simple altar like this, so it's something like this. I mean, this is not. This would fit into every Swedish household. I mean, it's not like. You know, it's it's nice. It's clean. It's simple. And nobody who would come to your house would think, oh, "What's this?" You know, it's a, no, it's it's beautiful. Yeah. So let's go very quickly to the second. The fully awake, the Buddhas, source of joy and well-being, all come from integrating the noble way. Because integration depends on your knowing how to practice, I will explain the practice of all bodhisattvas. So, the other translation said, awakening the Buddha. Awakening Buddha, source of joy and well-being. All come from integrating the noble way. So, awakening comes from integrating the noble way. So, how, how can we embody this? in our daily life. How can we embody this in challenges? And because if we want to bring it into our daily life, we want to embody it, and the important thing is actually to bring it in our, into our relationships, because I mean, that's our daily life. I mean, that's our life. Uh, relationships. All kinds of relationships. So that depends on knowing how to practice. So we need to get some experience. We need to. So how are we going to do this? And that's <coughs> why Tongme Sampo promises now to say, "I'm going to write this down. I'm I'm going to share how I do this. How I." How I, how I work with this. So, depends on your knowing how to practice. Uh, I, this is very, it, it will be different for all of you. So this <coughs> is like, it's also about finding your style, you know, finding your way to learn. And one thing you, you, you need to check is the teachers which you are working with, which you are listening to, are they meeting you in your learning style? Is actually something happening? Can you use this? You know, because some people, they... You know, some people they they learn, you know, through listening. Like some people learn, would learn something tonight by just me blah 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 and you listening. Yeah. So some people are. Yeah, that's how I learned a lot. You know, by listening. But for some people, this is completely useless. You no, know, they sit there and it's a lecture, and then they go home and you know, nothing has changed. 
So maybe you are someone actually who needs to do more. Like maybe you would be someone who would rather learn if I would have get up with everyone and we would have made the prostrations and we would felt it in our body and then you would go home and you would you would have learned something. You would have experienced something. Maybe some of you you discover you know this listening to lectures or this kind of doing, you know, if you go to some groups where some teachers, is that's what they do. You go to an evening, and that's why they, 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 they sing praise, they make prostrations, and, and that's an evening like this. Yeah. Uh, but maybe you are someone who needs to talk, you, who needs to discuss. Where you learn is like discussion groups, having like a buddy meeting like once an hour uh, once a week and and discussing this and sharing experiences and probably it's a combination of all those okay so now comes the first first Now this is the practice. And so this is the seven preparation practices. And I'm very sorry about this. Yeah, but it will be different next time. <laughs> And you can listen to the recording because you're not going to remember all of it. So, um, so now, now we will slow down. Now we have five minutes to, <laughs> because now, now starts the practice, yeah. And this is about precious human rebirth, the precious human life, the first verse. And I'm going to send you a, a, a link to a guided meditation about precious human life, a, a guided meditation I recorded. So, this could be then a way to start to work with this material. So you, so you read through this. Uh, you contemplate a bit, um, and then you do a few times. You do the reflection on the precious human life. You don't need to do it every day or something. Or if you do it one or two times, until we meet next time, that 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 would be fine. So let's read the first. Right now, you have a good boat, fully equipped and available, hard to find. So imagine, I mean, we by the sea here. So, you know, you go there to the harbor, maybe there's some nice places there. And there, there it is. A fully equipped boat. A good boat. And available. So, and you're standing there. And looking back, you know, the city, your life, busyness, Facebook, uh, friends, the rat race, yeah, and there it is, at a fully equipped boat. A fully equipped boat, which is very hard to find. I mean, it's like very hard to find. It's like, I mean, how on earth could you find it? <laughs> Because it's like, I, I mean, it's actually impossible to find it. But somehow you managed. Somehow you managed to find it. 
And this blood is, is very, very precious because it can free others and you from the sea of suffering. That's the journey this boat offers. So it's not just like any boat where you can just go somewhere and have a nice, nice time. No, this boat offers the possibility to free others and you from the sea of samsara. Why the heck are you not going into that boat? What is keeping you back? There it is. Precious human life. Are we using it really? And, and, and part of part of this is, and that's the f- reflection on the precious human life, is to become aware how precious it is. How fortunate we are. So this first is a this first is about realizing the potential. And and uh, wow. I'm going to make this journey. Day and night, fully alert and present. Study, reflect and meditate. This is the practice of a Bodhisattva. So day and night, fully alert and present. Day and night, fully alert and present. So if you read that, you know. I mean, I don't know what happens with you, but it's quite... puts a bit pressure on me. (laughs) 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 And maybe you, 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 um, you have noticed that when you, know, you get some traditional teachings about purification and then maybe karma combined with a bit hell in there and, uh, and, and that you feel that kind of, uh, yeah, it's like a pressure and it's like giving up the things you enjoy and getting afraid for you know, watching movies because you could meditate or you know, seeing a walk in the sun is a waste of time because you could say mantras instead and make offerings or, yeah. Um, uh, so uh, I, I could talk about this a long time. This is really um, a trap. So the interesting thing is here to 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 discover a way of living, a way of being that more and more you have a sense that it's all part of your awakening process. And that that does not mean that you do different things. Like, part of, it's not more part of awakening processes to sit down, to sit at home and, oh, I should, I should do the purification practice and going out in the sun and sit there is a waste of time. No, it's about discovering that actually sitting in the sun and going for a walk with your wife might be much more a a practice than sitting at home guilty, I should practice.
but I know, and this is a this is a process, and I, this is a wish also I have to share with you. I know it is possible, and it is not that far away. It's not that complicated. It is possible for you to get to a sense that you are practicing all the time, not like with this day and night fully alert and Achtung, yeah, Achtung, Achtung. <laughs> Achtung, machst du es auch gut? Ja. Achtung, Achtsamkeit. You know, Achtsamkeit is the German word for mindfulness. You know, like Achtsamkeit, you know, wow. They <laughs> they, they, give, they give everything to the police, the Germans, you know. <laughs> so this is not meant like this. I, uh, so, so we have to stop now. Um, so you, you have the text now, the beginning of the text. And I will send out the link to the meditation on precious human life. And um, yeah, some maybe some thoughts, maybe some quotes from what I read today for those who don't have the book. And then see if you can go back to the to this verses. Uh, in combination with your practice, whatever your practice is. So if it's like in the evening to sit on your couch and have a tea and you know, just be quiet and reflect a bit of, over the day, and then, and then you take these, these lines and, and you read them and you, you see you know, what comes up, what you remember from what I said, and so you just reflect on them. And it takes maybe five, ten minutes to, uh, to do that. To take like five, ten minutes to do that. And then if you have a breathing meditation or you do the Shenwesic practice, then you have maybe 20 minutes or half an hour of, uh, of a practice. In the morning or in the evening or in between. And you don't need to do it every day. would be nice, probably. Then you get into a rhythm. But if you do it a few times until we met... Uh, at until we meet in two weeks, um, that would be great. Yeah. Thank you very much. I'm glad that we do this now. And there's like two or three people who will join us next time. So, see you in two weeks.